Good morning, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to Redemption Hill. My name is Demetrius. I'm one of the community group leaders here at Redemption Hill. I lead the airport community, and we don't, do not meet at Richmond International Airport, and we do not give away free airline tickets, but you're welcome to come to the airport community that's on the East End. Now, if I start flying this morning, just know that uh, Robert doesn't have to perform an exorcism. I just had my Red Bull, so I might take up wings and fly. So, you know, I'm feeling, feeling good right now. I learned a lesson from the first time I preached, so I needed some energy. But uh, without further ado, let's uh, pray and get into the Word of God. Father God, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I just thank you for another opportunity to serve your people. It is a, an honor and a privilege, Lord. I pray that you help us hear your word. I pray that you help us to do your word. I pray that you help me to preach your word, Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. The great reformer John Calvin once said, The whole world is a theater for the display of God's divine goodness, wisdom, justice, and power. If Mr. Calvin thought that the world was a theater of God, then human history is the stage within the theater. And upon the stage of human history, God progressively, progressively reveals his story, the story of redemption. If you're no stranger to Redemption Hill, you know that we have been in a series called The Drama of Redemption in which we have sought to highlight the Bible's central theme, which is redemption as it is found in the person and works of Jesus Christ. So far, we have seen God's drama of redemption unfold in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we have traveled the promised land with the patriarchs, and we have seen God establish his covenant with them to initiate redemption. We have sat with the kings, and we have supped with them. We have observed their successes and their failures. We have heard the clarion call of repentance come from the mouths of the prophets as they call God's people back to covenant faithfulness. We have seen the failure of God's people, the sinfulness of God's people, the destruction of Jerusalem and their precious temple. We have seen the captivity of God's people due to their sin. And now upon the stage of human history, we come to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And in these books, God will continue to reveal our need for redemption and the means of redemption. However, before we move into the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we must understand two foundational truths about these books. We must understand the first foundational truth, which is found in the unity, in the unity of the books. Commentator H.G. Williamson says that these books should be studied as a single whole. Most theologians and rabbis will tell you that these books are one single volume. The second foundational truth is found in the history of the books, or the historicity of these books as well. We recently studied the books of First and Second Kings, and in those books the biblical authors sought to reveal the truth about two kingdoms, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Israel's demise came in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. For another 150 years, the kingdom of Judah continued to exist. However, they were met with the same fate as Israel. The Babylonians under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar came in and utterly destroyed the city and its temple, and all hope was lost. The people of God were so broken that they gave this cry in Psalm 137, verse 4. How can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign 
land. They said this as they sat by the rivers of Babylon. Why did this happen? Why did the people of God suffer so? The answer is their sin. God's people were taken, taken captive due to their infidelity to God. God warned the people that should they break his covenant, that the Lord himself would scatter them among all peoples from one end of the earth to another. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Deuteronomy 28, 64. As Chris told us last week, the exile was the darkest period to occur upon the stage of human history. The exile expresses to us the consequences of sin and God's discipline due to sin. Sin is a great evil that brought disaster to God's people. It brought nothing good to them then, and it brings nothing good to God's people today. It is because of the sin of God's people that they were taken off into captivity. However, while in captivity, a few of God's faithful began to seek his gracious promise in Jeremiah 25, verse 11. Jeremiah tells us that the people of God would be in captivity for 70 years. And after 70 years, God would bring them back into their land. And Daniel, one of the faithful, realized this promise. He prayed to God that he would fulfill his word, that he would be faithful to his word. And God began to move. This gracious promise forms the foundation upon which the books of Ezra and Nehemiah rest. It is upon this foundation that God acts to bring his people back to the land of Israel. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah seek to present us with three truths. Number one, the return of God's people. Number two, the restoration of God's people. And number three, the reformation of God's people. Let's look at our first point this morning the return of God's people. If you would be so kind to turn with me to Ezra chapter 1, and we'll read the entire first chapter. Verse 1 reads, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who, he is, the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of, this, of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares. Besides all that was freely offered, Cyrus the king also brought out vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. 
Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithradath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censures, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazzar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Having read these passages, we must ask this question. How did the people return to the land? And the answer is this. They returned to the land by the power of a sovereign God. In the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you will see the unrivaled and absolute sovereignty of God on display as he accomplishes his redemptive plan for his glory and the joy of his people. A matter of fact, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we are pre- books of Ezra and Nehemiah present us with some of the greatest truths concerning the sovereignty of God in the entire Bible. The first truth that we are presented with is the scope of God's sovereignty. Notice here in verse 1, Ezra tells us who God, God moves. He does not move a governor. He does not move a mere man or an insignificant subject in the Persian Empire. However, he moves the most powerful man in the world, Cyrus himself. Notice what the Lord does with Cyrus. Verse 1, it says that the Lord moved the spirit of Cyrus or the mind or the affections of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now that might not mean much to you, but let me continue to paint upon the canvas of your hearts a glorious picture of how powerful this man Cyrus was. And maybe, as I do, we shall see a contrast between his rule and the sovereign rule of God. Cyrus was a man of tremendous power and prestige. He was an absolute ruler of the known world at this time. His kingdom extended into vast regions of the world. He was a brilliant conqueror and a master strategist. Historians tell us that he wielded the power of one of the largest armies known to man. Cyrus was one of the first kings to concern himself with human rights. His kingdom was marked by organization and wealth. He was well-loved by his subjects. He was so well-loved that they showered him with an abundance of regal titles. They called him the great king, Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, the king of the four corners of the world. And in the city of Babylon, the Babylonians loved him so much that they called him the great liberator because he liberated them from Babylonian rule, the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. This was the people's king. The people loved Cyrus. It is said of Cyrus that he conquered nations by his armies and by his charisma, the hearts of men. The ancient historian Xenophon, in his book, The Cyropedia, or The Chronicles of Cyrus, says this, And those who were subject to him, he treated them with esteem and regard, as if they were his own children, while his subjects themselves respected Cyrus as their father. What other man but Cyrus, after having overturned an empire, ever died with the title of the father? from the people whom he brought under his power. For it is a plain fact that this is a name for one that bestows rather than one that takes away. My friends, this is a powerful man. This is an absolute potentate in the realm of humanity. A man amongst boys, a man to be feared, a man who was not subject to anyone or anything in the earth realm. However, this man, Cyrus, he is just a man, and he too is under the sovereign rule of God. He too must bow his knee to the King of kings and Lord of lords. 
God holds forth Cyrus, the most powerful man in the world, as an object lesson to his people then and an object lesson to us today to tell us that there are no limits to his sovereign rule, there is no scope to his rule, and that his rule is universal. Psalm 103.19 says this, God's throne is in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Daniel 4.35 says this, He does according to his will among the host of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done in God's kingdom? There are no such things as sovereign Satans, dominionist demons, autonomous atoms, mighty molecules, or exalted electrons. There is only one sovereign who sits enthroned in the heavens, who wields the power of absolute authority, and it is our sovereign God. Do you believe in a God like this? Is this offensive to you? I was watching Christian television the other night. You know, I stopped watching the NCAA tournament. I just decided to turn on Christian television. And I heard these two men talking about God and prayer and how God uses prayer. And yes, God ordains prayer as a means. But they said, this one man said, you know what? God can't do anything in the earth realm unless we give him a legal right to do so. And the other preacher said, oh my goodness, this is such great revelation. And you know what I wanted to say? Child, please. <laughs> Obviously, you have never read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah because they present us with this sovereign and omnipotent God who does according to his will in the armies of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of men. We serve a sovereign God. Do you believe in a God like this? Do we believe in a God like this? Let's, let me test, test it out for a moment. How do you react when your favorite politician doesn't win that seat in office? How do you feel when trials come? Are you attacked by a sense of hopelessness? Or do you go off into this binge of self-sufficiency and you try to figure out everything yourself without going to God. I'm telling on myself here. How do you feel in times of prosperity? Do you praise him from whom all blessings flow? Or do you forget that it is God who gives you the power to get wealth? Your reaction to these things will expose your heart and it will show you whether you're a practical atheist or whether you truly believe that God is an absolute sovereign. And when you talk about the doctrine of God's sovereignty, there's always someone who takes it a little bit too far, don't they? Take the man who's looking for a job. Well, God's sovereign. I'll just sit here, drink my lemonade, rest my back, watch my favorite TV show. God's sovereign is nothing I can do. I'll get the job if he wants me to get it, or I won't get it. He's sovereign. Now, let me tell you something. If you're doing that, stop doing that. I don't. Don't do that. The sovereignty of God never inhibits human action or human responsibility. It empowers human action. It is because God is sovereign that we do act. It is because God is sovereign that we do pray. In the book of Nehemiah, he hears this story about 
the tragedy that has occurred in Jerusalem. He's broken. He's hurt. He weeps. What does he do? Does he just say, well, God's sovereign, the walls are down, I'm just going to sit here and rest my back? No. He realizes that God is sovereign. He realizes that he can do nothing to change Artaxerxes' heart. But he realizes that he must do something. What does he do? In in the New Living Translation, in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11, it says this is what he does. He knows God's sovereign, so he prays. He says, oh, Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. In chapter 2, you see him reacting again to the sovereignty of God. He goes in to speak with Artaxerxes, and it is God who sovereignly turns the heart of Artaxerxes to allow Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem to build the walls. The sovereignty of God never inhibits human action. It empowers human action. However, in the light of this great truth of God's sovereignty, men do not like it. It is offensive. Charles Spurgeon once said, men would have God to be anywhere except upon his throne. The thought of a sovereign ruler so disturbed Lord Acton that he says this, power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. This statement may be true of men, but it is never true of our sovereign God. Why is that? This brings us to our second point about the sovereignty of God in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. The second point is the stability and the trustworthiness of God's sovereignty. How is it that we can trust God to do what is right by his sovereign power? We can trust a a sovereign God because his sovereignty is connected to his perfect being and attributes. When God acts in sovereign power, his other attributes are at work as well. God is not like a man who says, well, you know, today, you know, I'm feeling a little sovereign, feel like crushing some people, so I'm going to put my love coat on the coat hanger. It's not what God does. He doesn't say, well, you know, I'm not feeling loving today, so let me just pick up my wrath hammer and let me just bash some stuff. When God moves, all of him moves. Let's look at verse 1 of Ezra chapter 1 once again. Now pay attention to this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Now, stop for a second. God is telling us something here about himself. He's saying to us that I'm going to do something that I promised 70 years earlier. Okay? Now, this text is highlighting for us God's attribute of faithfulness, okay? Faithfulness is God's utter dependability or his truthfulness. Now let's keep reading. You're going to see another attribute here. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Here we have the absolute sovereignty on display. We have the faithfulness of God. 
we have the sovereignty of God in one verse. This verse does not just tell us that God is a universal sovereign, having all power over all things, but it tells us that he is a faithful sovereign. Ezra wants us to understand that God never moves in sovereign power without moving in line with his other perfections. And that is why Lord Acton's statement, power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely, is untrue of God. Why? Because when he moves, all of him moves. The sovereignty of God is connected to his holiness. This tells us that God's sovereignty will always be pure and without sin or moral evil. Deuteronomy 32.4 God's sovereignty is connected to the attribute of his justice, meaning that by his sovereign power, he will always do what is right. That is why Abraham, in Genesis 18 and 19, called out to God. He said, will not the judge of the earth do what is right? He knew that God was sovereign. He knew that God could bring judgment. But he also knew that anchored to the sovereignty of God, anchored to the wrath of God, was his faithfulness, his grace, and his mercy. And that's why he said, will not the judge of all of the earth do right? The sovereignty of God is connected to his loving kindness, meaning that by his sovereign rule, he will always be patient and kind and never overbearing with his sovereign Power. I tell you, dear ones, this truth should bring us great comfort. It should be the pillow upon which we rest our heads in a weary land. Because behind the control center of the universe is a sovereign God, but not only a sovereign God, a good God. God's sovereignty is universal. His sovereignty is connected to his perfections. And our third point about the sovereignty of God is the grace of God's sovereignty. These people here do not deserve to come back to the land. This, te this text here in Ezra 1.5, it says this, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit the Lord had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. These people here, they do not deserve to come back to the land. The text here does not indicate to us that many of them were seeking God. Does not tell us that they were gooing over God, that they wanted God. Does not give us that idea. Because they were captivated by Babylon. They were taken by Babylon. Jewish historian Josephus tells us this about the people of God. When Cyrus had given his decree to the Israelites, the rulers of the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin with the Levites and priests went in haste to Jerusalem, yet did many of them stay behind in Babylon, not willing, not being willing to return. Charles F. Fincham, in his analysis of the history of this time period, tells us this. Not all the Jews in Babylon went back to Judah. A significant group stayed behind. They were prosperous. They were satisfied with the conditions of the land. They had great success in business. Fincham tells us that the Mirashu family, that they started the very first banking center in human history in Babylon. 
the Jewish people were content with Babylon, the very city that captured them, the very city that tried to destroy them as a distinct people, ended up winning the affections of their heart. It not only took a sovereign God to move Cyrus's heart, but it took a sovereign God to move his people's heart. What these people deserve is bondage. They deserve death. What they deserve is abandonment due to their rejection and disobedience to God. Do you realize that you and I are like this? We were like this. We did not seek after God. We did not desire God. I can tell you about myself. When I was growing up in King George County, Virginia, I could care less about God. I grew up with a tyrant of a stepfather who told me, made sure I knew that I would never amount to anything. Made sure I knew. I thought, how could God be good if I'm in this situation? You see, I hated my stepfather. My grandfather would talk to me about church. Come to church. Come to the Lord. Although he was the godliest man, still to this day that I know, there's nothing he could do to bring me back to God. My heart was hard. And it was a sovereign God that brought me back to him. Do you understand that you are no match for your sins? Your sins are powerful. You cannot play with sin. You cannot say, well, you know, I'll go out here and I'll sin today. I'll come back to God. I'll confess my sin. I'll go to Robert. I'll go to Shelby. I'll go to whoever. And I'll confess my sins to them. And I'll just come right back into Redemption Hill and everything is honky-dory. Everything is fine. Let me tell you what. If we could interview the people from Romans chapter 1, verses 24, 26, and 28, they will tell you that they did not have the power to come back. They went off into this binge of sin and they had no power to repent. That's how powerful sin is. If we could go off into the vast abyss of eternity and we could interview Esau, and we asked him, could you repent, Esau? Did you have power enough to come back when you sold your birthright? When you committed your fornications, could you come back to God? Esau would tell each and every last one of us, no, I sought it. I desired it. I longed for it. But I could not find repentance. This is how powerful sin is. Behold the power of sin. 650. 3,550 men in numbers went into the promised land. 42,360 come back to the promised land. This tells us about the ravishing effects of sin. Out of the masses in Babylon, all blind, all seeking their own way, all loving their sin, God is gracious enough to bring back two tribes, only Benjamin and Judah. That's what verse 5 says. Only Benjamin and Judah came back. What happened to the other ten? They stayed in Babylon. They loved it. There is nothing you can do to bring yourself out from the bondage of sin. It takes a sovereign God, and he brought back only two tribes. Out of the mass of sinful humanity, God chose you and brought you to himself. It is not because of your wit and your ingenuity 
or your piety that you came to God. It is because he warmed your heart and you saw how glorious and gracious he was. And Psalm 110.3 says, in the day of his power, he made you willing to come to him. You may say, Demetrius, this is harsh. What about my roommate, Tim? What about my next door neighbor? They're not seeking God. It's unfair. God chose me, but why won't he take, take Tim? He may take Tim. We don't know that. But if you want fair, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, that's fair. For every human being, Revelation 20, 11 through 15 is fair. That I saw a great white throne set in the heavens. And when it was set, the heavens and the earth, it was so terrifying that the heavens and the earth, they fled away. And I saw him who was seated upon the throne. And this one seated upon the throne, he called all the unredeemed humans to that throne. On that, he will, on that day, he will call them. And he will open the books. And he will examine every detail of their lives. The judgment of God will be so exacting that not one idle word will leave the judgment seat of God. Every deed, every thought, every action scrutinized on that day. And at the end of the judgment, guess what? Because of their works, they are cast into the lake of fire where day after day, month after month, year after year, they live under the wrath of God. And there is no one there to propitiate their sins. That's fair. What we need to be saying is how did God, this holy God, Choose me to bring me to himself. This is the sovereign grace of God on display. God determined the time of your birth. Acts 17, 26 through 27. He determined the time of your birth, where you would live, that you may seek after him and perhaps feel after him and find him. This leads us to our last point about the sovereignty of God, the wonder of God's sovereignty, as found in verses 7 through 11. The Lord moves upon Cyrus and Mithridath to bring all the vessels and the temple utensils out for them to be counted and returned to Israel. This is what I like to call the gospel according to pots and pans. He wanted us to see this. This is why God had this written out. He wanted us to see the same thing that the people in Ezra's time needed to see. You see, we just got through talking about this omnipotent God, this all-powerful being who's pulsating with power. And he can be intimidating when we think about it. But here God, this awesome God, shows us what I like to call his forgotten attribute. You won't find it in a systematic theology. The attribute of his humility and his meekness. God stoops so low here to oversee pots and pans. Just pots and pans. He's concerned about pots and pans. And it's as if he takes the need to look over and see if they do it right. He's saying to us, if I care about pots and pans, How much more will I care for you? Have you ever felt like you can't go to God 
with those insignificant things, the things that you think are insignificant. You can go to him. You can cast your cares upon him because he is meek and he is lowly and he still gives rest. And yet again, this God will stoop even lower. Hundreds of years later, this God would take on human flesh. He would stoop so low to receive 39 lashes on his back. He would take a thorn, a crown thorn, a thorn crown on his head. He would go to the cross. He would let them take him to the cross. And he would die with our sins upon him. And he would die under the wrath of God. He stoops low here, not to oversee the administration of pots and pans, but to oversee the salvation of your souls. Philippians 2, 5-8 through 8 tells us that Jesus humbled himself and he took on human flesh that he might die on the cross for your sins. I'm going to challenge you to search the untapped regions of the world. Travel to the end of the galaxy if you can. Go into the deep regions of the universe, and I tell you, you will never find a God like this. You won't find him. You can ask Zeus. You can ask Athena. You can ask Baal. They, but those gods, they may exploit you, but they will never die for you. This God is so humble. He is so loving. He is so caring. This sovereign God that he takes on human flesh and he dies for you. God's people return to the land because he is sovereign and because he is gracious. Our second point, we just talked about the return of God's people. Now we will talk about the restoration of God's people. In the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you will see this sovereign God begin to restore his people. You will see the restoration play out in three major events. The restoration of their identity, the restoration of their communion, and the restoration of their community. Let's look at this first point. Let's go to Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3. And we'll read verses 1 through 3. And when the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in the, in the towns, and the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. And then arose Jeshua, the son of Jehoshadak, with his fellow priests, Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, with his kinsmen. And they built an altar of, they built the altar of God, of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was upon them because of the peoples of the land. They offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Notice here that these people, they were a fearful bunch. In and of themselves, they were no match for the enemies of the land. Do they build an army? Do they build weapons? Do they elect a king? No, they do something totally different. They establish an altar. And this altar would have reminded the people about 
who they were and to whom they belong. It would have reminded them that they were a redeemed people. In a sense, we could say that these people were an altar-centered people. It was not until the altar was restored in Israel that restoration could occur in other areas of their lives. After they set the altar, they were able to restore the temple. They were able to restore the sacred feast. They were able to restore the city and its walls. It was in this sacrificial altar that they truly found themselves. And I'm going to ask you the same question that Chris asked you last week. Where does your identity lie? Does it lie in your children? Does it lie in your job? Does it lie in your degrees or how much money you make? Today, it must not lie in those things, but it must lie in the cross and in the person and works of Jesus Christ. The people of Israel found their identity in the altar, and we must find our identity in the cross of Christ. The cross permeates every facet of our human existence. In our marriages, we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. For the elders, they are to take heed to to themselves and to the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made them overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. Their ministries are supposed to be founded on the cross in relation to sin. Romans 6, 1 through 4, I'm going to summarize. It says this, how can you go on sinning when Christ died for you? How can you go on sinning? when you have been resurrected with Christ. Here was at the altar that these people began to experience restoration, and it is only in the cross of Jesus Christ that you will experience true restoration in your lives. My grandfather used to sing this song. He still sings it to this day. He's a deacon. And the song is by Ralph E. Hudson. And it says this, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burdens of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith that I received my sight and now I am happy all the day. You must take joy in the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the only immutable truth we have. Dear ones, you're going to lose your loved ones someday. I lost a son. You're going to lose money. You're going to lose jobs at times. You're going to lose friends. These things are mutable. They're always changing. But you must rest in the immutable truth of the cross because it's the only thing that will give you true joy and happiness in life. Thirdly, there's a restoration of communion. Or secondly, there's a restoration of communion. Notice here in Ezra 3, verses 1 through 8, write it down. We don't have the time to go over it, but in Ezra 3, 8 through 11, they start to rebuild the temple. After they establish their identity as an altar-centered people, they come to rebuild the temple. The temple is significant because it is here where fellowship and communion took place with God. What is communion? Communion is intimate fellowship or the act or the instance of sharing. But notice, true communion, true worship is only followed by the rebuilding of the altar. 
The sacrifices made upon the altar paved the way for Israel to come to God. It is only through Jesus Christ that you can approach God. You can't approach Him with your merit. You can't approach Him with your works. All of our works, Isaiah 64, 6, are filthy rags before God. You must approach God through the person and works of Jesus Christ. This is why Hebrews 10 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, it is only through Christ that we can have vital union and communion with God. Does your past haunt you? Do you say to yourselves, listen, I, I, I've done so many sins. I, I've committed so many sins. I've done things that I wouldn't tell anyone. Let me tell you what. Your approach to God is not based on what you have done. It's based on what Jesus Christ has done for you. And now you can come into the presence of God without guilt or inferiority because of what Jesus Christ has done. God restores their communion through this altar. John Calvin says this, Jesus turns the Father's eyes to his own righteousness to avert his gaze from our sins. He so reconciles the Father's heart to us that by his intercession, he prepares a way and access for, for us to the throne of God. It is by Christ and Christ alone that we approach God in fellowship with him. Thirdly, there's a restoration of their community. Notice here in Ezra chapter, chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in, in the towns, the people gathered as what? One man to Jerusalem. Notice here that the people gathered as one people around the altar. If you continue to read through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you will see that the people work together, they suffer together, they overcome together. The Lord tells us through these books, Ezra and Nehemiah, that you cannot live your Christian life alone. There is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. You can't do it alone. You're going to fight together. You're going to live life together. You're going to struggle together. But what do we do oftentimes when we go through trials? We hide ourselves from our brothers and sisters. We should not do this because the strong bear up the infirmities of the weak. In your times of weakness, there is someone in this congregation and in the church universal that is able to comfort you and console you during your trials. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 tells us that if one member suffers, all suffer. Have you ever noticed in Ephesians 6, 12 that it does not say Demetrius wrestles against principalities and powers or Robert wrestles against principalities and powers? It says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world. Notice the word we. Notice the plurality there. We don't fight alone. We fight together. God restores us as a community. Lastly, there is opposition. You can best realize that when God takes us through a period of restoration, that Satan will oppose our efforts and the efforts of a sovereign God. He will try. 
Both Ezra and Nehemiah face opposition. In Ezra chapter 4, the people in the land begin to attack God's people. They go to Artaxerxes and they smear the reputation of God's people and the restoration ceases for 15 years. In the book of Nehemiah, he too faces opposition. This opposition comes from Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem, starting in Nehemiah chapter 3. This opposition is persistent, and it breaks the spirits of God's people. But the real question is this, how do they overcome this opposition? They overcome it in two ways, through the word of God and by prayer. In the book of Ezra, chapter 5, verses 2, 1 through 2, you will see Haggai and Zechariah begin to encourage God's people with his word. They were restored. They had stopped building. They had stopped this restoration process for 15 years. And it was the word that awakened God's people. Psalm 19.7 tells us that it is the word of God that brings restoration to our souls. If you're going to overcome opposition, you must overcome opposition with the very word of God. Secondly, prayer. Nehemiah faces Sambalot's wrath. And he realizes that he is no match for Sambalot. He prays to God. He casts his care upon God. And it is this sovereign God that empowers them to build the walls. I'm going to tell you, dear ones, the only way you're going to overcome opposition is through prayer and the word of God. We do not face Sambalot, Tobiah, or Geshem today. We face dark, demonic despots who rule in the heavenlies. And you, are, you and I, we're no match for them. Without the weapons God has provided for us, we will not overcome their opposition. We must pray. We must be established in the word of God. We've seen the return of God's people, the restoration of God's people, and now we come to our last point, the reformation of God's people. If you would turn with me to Ezra chapter 9. We'll read verses 1 through 2. And after these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves, for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with peoples of the land. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. Notice here in verse 1, notice the reason for the separation. The reason is for the abominations of the people, the, not the ethnicity of the people. In Ezra 6, chapter in Ezra 6, verse 21, the people of the lands who converted to Judaism were able to partake of the Passover feast. So it is not the ethnicity, it is the religious defilement of the people that they were to separate from. God warned his people in Exodus 23, 32, that if they made covenants with, they made a covenant with these people, they would be a snare to them because of their gods. 
they were to separate because of religious defilement. Ezra is furious by this report. He is upset. He is hurt. He is frustrated. He is so frustrated that he pulls his hair out. He pulls his beard out. He is destroyed and he confronts the sinfulness of God's people. And they repent of their sins and they have a reformation. However, when Nehemiah returns years later, in Nehemiah chapter 13, 23 through 27, when he returns to Israel, guess what he finds? They are committing the very same sins that caused them to go into exile. Sin is powerful in these people. They cannot ward off their sins. They cannot deal with their sins. They continuously sin. And dear ones, I wish I could give you good news about these people. I wish that I could tell you that after the exile, that they changed. That it all ended up well for these people. But these books do not end well. If you get to the end of Ezra, he gives us a list of everyone who has sinned against God. It is not good. If you get to the book of Nehemiah at the very end, what does he do? He gives this speech to the people and he says to them, don't you realize that Solomon committed the same sin? This sin has caused us to go into captivity. What are you doing? These books don't end well. As good as Ezra was, there wasn't a sacrifice that he could give to ward off the sins of God's people. He could not die for their sins. His sacrifice would have been insufficient. He was a priest, but he was not the priest that the people needed. As powerful as Nehemiah was, the great reformer that he was, he could make social reforms. He could establish political reforms, but he was unable to establish true reformation, the reformation of the heart. Maybe and perhaps Nehemiah and Ezra said to themselves, Lord, we are sinful. We cannot deal with our sins. How are we going to get over this, God? How are we going to overcome? They did not realize that hundreds of years later, that at the very temple that they rebuilt, that the great priests, the great reformer, would establish not a, he wouldn't establish a reformation, he would establish the reformation, the true reformation that only he, Jesus Christ, could give. They did not realize that in that temple he would call men to repentance. They did not realize that as he walked through those gates or that he would walk through them and they would lay down palm branches and they would cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They did not realize that they would waltz him right back out of those gates through the walls and they would crucify him where he would die with your sins, with my sins. He would die in the white-hot flame of God's wrath. And it seemed as if on that day, his ministry was just as insufficient 
as Nehemiah's and Ezra's. But they buried him. And in three days, he got up. And now he is seated in the heavenlies. And he has sent his spirit now to reform our hearts where reformation is needed. Listen, I don't know where you are this morning with God. Some of you may say to yourselves, listen, Demetrius, I've tried. I've tried to get over this. I can't stop this sin. I'm going to be honest with you. I love it. And I cannot overcome it. I've prayed the prayers. I've cried. I've wept. I've gone to revival services and there's nothing I can do. I don't know where you are. I don't know if you're hardened by sin and you just don't care. I don't know if you would say I'm powerless. Let me tell you something. My wife and I, we have four children. One in heaven today. But when our children, when they were small, they're still small. But when they were babies, we used to set them, and the mothers know this, Deneen would know this, we would set them in this thing called a boppy. And they were bound by the boppy. They couldn't go anywhere. They were bound by the boppy. They had legs, but they did not have power in their legs. And when they would just sit there and play, and they were enamored by their toys, just like we're enamored by sin, we would be enamored. We're enamored by it. Then at times, at times, they would get frustrated. They no longer wanted to be in the boppy. But they did not have power to come to Stephanie and I. But you see, Stephanie and I, we had more than enough power to go to our children when they cried out, to bring them to ourselves. And I tell you, I don't know if you're feeling powerless this morning. But this sovereign God, this good God, has more than enough power to bring you to himself. And I challenge you this morning to cry out to him, to repent of your sins, to turn from your sins, and you will find out that God will in no wise cast you out. He will open his arms, this sovereign God, and welcome you into his family. Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus. I thank you for another opportunity to preach your word, to speak to your people. Lord, please apply the word of God to our hearts this morning. Speak to us as you know how to. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.